Welcome to Shift 6, a developer-focused health tech podcast from Redox. I'm your host and the CTO at Redox, James Lloyd. Here we'll explore the ways amazing technologists are bringing new innovation to market, growing their teams, and dealing with an ever-changing landscape in one of the world's most complex industries. We believe that technology from diverse and empathetic creators holds the power to improve the lives of patients across the globe. And we hope this podcast helps make your work in healthcare even more impactful. Let's jump in. Hi, everyone. This is Maddie Bencourt. I'm an intern here at Redox, and I worked on the post-production for today's episode. On the show today, James talks to David Golan, CTO and co-founder of Viz.ai, an applied AI healthcare company working to help stroke victims receive timely care. David and the team at Viz have pioneered the integration of deep learning and medicine to become the first ever FDA-certified computer-aided triage application. I really enjoyed listening to James and David's conversation and learning about how Viz got their start and all the amazing work they continue to do to streamline patient care. With that, let's get started. Welcome to the show, David. Great to be here. Thanks. Just to get us started, could you tell us a little bit more about Viz AI and what you all do? Definitely. It's one of my favorite topics to discuss. So Viz AI, our mission is to connect patients and doctors to facilitate better healthcare. And that's a very broad statement. And we're trying to realize it first and foremost in acute care and stroke, as you mentioned. It's a remarkably time-sensitive condition. Patients come into the hospital and they're typically the severe delays before they get proper treatment. What this does is connect hospitals to the cloud. The data from the hospitals goes to the cloud, is analyzed automatically by our deep learning engine. We identify specific patients that have time-sensitive conditions such as stroke and triage them directly to the physician who can actually make a decision and treat them as soon as possible. And by doing so, we shave a considerable amount of time to treatment in conditions where every minute is literally life and death difference. In stroke, a minute translates to an average of four and a half days of disability. So it's a really, really time-sensitive race against the clock, and we provide the technology to make things happen faster, to identify the patients and unlock the therapies. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. And I guess just to, to get to know you a little bit more, can you tell us a little bit about your path to co-founding Viz and, and kind of how you found your co-founders and got started down this path of starting Viz? Yeah, definitely. So to be completely honest, I'm, I'm not one of those people who've been always dreaming about starting a company and had a particularly strong and particular nature. So, you know, I'm Israeli. So as, as many Israelis do, I, at 18, you spent three years in the army. I was fortunate enough to spend most of that time doing intelligence, computer stuff, which was exciting and also involved a lot of statistics and machine learning uh, and so on. After I was discharged, I joined a small startup called Beehive Networks. We were optimizing data centers. That's important, but not that sexy. And we were using machine learning and we were sort of the pioneers of applying machine learning in, in that context, which led the, the company grew and was pretty successful and was eventually acquired by VMware. So I spent some time at VMware, at which point I decided that corporate life is not for me and went on to pursue an academic career. I, I spent eight years at Tel Aviv University doing all sorts of machine learning related things in, in various topics from economics to genetics and bioinformatics and social sciences and healthcare. And then came to Stanford on a Fulbright scholarship to continue my research. You know, luck is really important. So I like to joke that I landed 
when the wave of deep learning, the upswell started, it was the first time a class about convolutional neural networks was, was taught at Stanford. And I literally came just to hear what the fuss is all about and got fascinated by what I felt was not just another algorithm, but rather a cataclysmic event, which turned out to be true. So I sort of ditched my entire research agenda and started investing myself in deep learning and applications in various contexts, quickly gravitating towards medical imaging. That was sort of a very, very a good setup for what came next. My intro to stroke was kind of unfortunate. I was hospitalized at Stanford Hospital with a suspected stroke about, I think, five and a half years ago now, maybe maybe six. Luckily, it wasn't a stroke. It was a different kind of a neurological episode. It's known as a stroke mimic. It looks like a stroke and it feels like a stroke, but it's not, and it's reversible, and I'm, I'm perfectly fine, thank God. But two things were very, very obvious. First of all, extremely scary experience. I uh, couldn't move an arm, couldn't move a leg. At some point, I couldn't speak. Didn't know what was going on. Very frightening. At, at that point, I was pretty sure I'm having a stroke and sort of imagining how the rest of my life would look with severe disabilities. Um, you know, having a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home and stuff like that. You think how your life is going to look like. So the other half of the brain is looking around and asking, what the hell is going on? Why is everything taking so long? Why does everybody seem so confused? Why is the process slow? And now in retrospect, I can tell you, and I actually recovered my medical file from Stanford a while back. Between the time that I was imaged and the time that my case was viewed by an expert neurologist, about three hours have passed. And the crazy thing is, this is pretty typical for stroke cases, that despite, and I mentioned earlier, they say time is brain, time is of the essence, save a minute, save a week. These are all sentences that they use in the stroke community. And it got me curious. Stanford Hospital is obviously a really good hospital. And it was, I think, a Monday morning. You wouldn't say, like, Friday, middle of the night. So you would expect to get really, really good healthcare. If this is, like, what really good healthcare looks like, um, <laughs> you know, what does bad healthcare look like? And I was fortunate enough to meet my co-founder and the CEO of VZI, Chris Mancy, on that background. So Chris is a neurosurgeon from the UK who moved to Stanford to the business school there. And I was introduced to him by a mutual friend who said, I know a guy who's a neurosurgeon, maybe he can, I don't know, look at your medical record and see and give you some advice. So, you know, we met and I sort of told him this story and Chris sort of looks at me and says, you know, dude, you're, it's a good story, but you're lucky, you're alive, you're well, nothing happened to you. I actually had people die on my table on a regular basis over stupid delays like that. And I actually came here to Stanford to sort of fix it because I realized that as a neurosurgeon in the operating room, I can save minutes. But what does it matter if it took the patient four hours to get from the ER to my OR? Those four hours are really what's determining the outcome, and this is what we need to fix. And oh, wouldn't it be great if we could identify those scans, those patients, out of the many, many patients in the many, many hospitals that are being hospitalized and and scanned and tested all the time, if you could sort of pick up those that actually need the attention of a specific physician and sort of connect them. I remember this, we sort of sat in the backyard of our mutual friend by the fire and sort of took out Chris's phone and started Googling some images of how stuff looks like. And I said, hey, have you heard about deep learning? And he said, you know, I heard about it, but tell me more. Basically, I said in a somewhat naive slash optimistic slash arrogant Israeli, I think we can build this with deep learning. We can do anything we want and identify pathologies in medical imaging. He said, well, if you think we can build it, we should definitely start a company. And that's what we did.
to be fair, it took some more convincing. He was sort of, <laughs> he wanted to start a company there and then. It took me a bit longer to sort of give up on the idea of an academic career. But we've been, we sort of both ditched careers we had to go back to. Chris, as a neurosurgeon in the UK, and I actually had a faculty position lined up and sort of decided we'll go on this ride that is, that is Viz AI. That's amazing. So that was, what, three or four years ago that you started the company? Uh, like end of 2015, beginning 2016. Okay. So uh, I guess five, five Very years. Very cool. Five, Very five cool. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you got started? I know that in order to perform any sort of machine learning or deep learning, you need some sort of training data and you need to build up an algorithm. Can you kind of talk about what it was like to get started? And I know there's a lot of folks who try to get into the AI space in healthcare often struggle at this point in terms of getting their first data set to start working with prior to having a first customer, having a pilot site. I'd love to hear kind of how you got started and how you got the algorithms first yeah. and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that's interesting is now it, there's a lot of AI going on in this space, but, but back then, we're talking like 2015, 2016, it was sort of a consensus that deep learning is not really applicable to medical imaging. And the reason was, back then, people said you need a lot of data to make deep learning work, like millions of images of dogs and cats to you know, have a model that differentiates dogs from cats. Specifically in healthcare, there's issues with access to data because of privacy because of HIPAA and so on. And even if you were to be able to access data, you need, the annotations would be very expensive because you would need a radiologist that charges three, four hundred bucks an hour where everybody else who's doing deep learning is leveraging like Mechanical Turk for two cents a click or whatnot. So, you know, you can just forget about it unless you get access to a really, really, really huge data set. That was sort of the sentiment back then. My own research prior to starting Viz AI was really about challenging that and demonstrating ways in medical imaging where you can make deep learning effective with relatively small data sets. All of these ideas today seem, I think, really widely accepted, but back then people were doing classification. And classification is actually a fairly complex cognitive task, so you need a lot of data. I started then playing with segmentation networks combining a deep learning model with sort of a rule-based post-processing approach. So basically you would do something like, I'm just throwing like a hypothetical. Let's say you want to identify a bone fracture, right? The approach that was popular then was, we'll take a million pictures of a bone, x-rays of a bone without a fracture, and a million pictures of a bone with a fracture, and we'll train a classifier. And if we have enough data, the classifier will be good. So obviously you need a lot of data for that because you've not told the algorithm anything about what you're looking for and what is a fracture and what the hell is the algorithm seeing. So the hybrid approach that I was playing with would be something like, forget about fractures. Let's first segment the bone. Let's identify which pixels in the image are bone and which are not. And that's a much, much, much easier task. My sort of rule of thumb is think about teaching a five-year-old to do something. Right, you can teach your five-year-old to color a bone on an X-ray scan pretty easily. If you want them to mark fractures, you'd have to wait for them to finish medical school and radio training and so on. So it is really analogous. And then the question is, well, if we have a really good segmentation, can we maybe add sort of a post-processing heuristic or some sort of post-processing step that would identify the fracture? Really naive, you have segmented the bone and just measure the density along the bone, and if you see the density goes down and up, 
it's indicating that something happened there. It's interesting. Maybe it's, it's a good way to, to identify the fractures. Maybe it's not. But coming with this approach is might in the, in the long term be less effective than deep learning, but in the short term, you can get something working with relatively small data sets. So we sort of felt very strongly that we can get started with relatively small data sets, and I'm talking you know, hundreds or thousands, where everybody else said, don't even think about getting into deep learning in medical imaging without millions of images. So that was a very good start. And then you're asking where you get the data from. The founding data sets that we started learning from and experimenting with came from India. We had one of our employees who was from India and from a family of doctors, and she was at Stanford and then moved back to India, just tenaciously went from one hospital to another, talked to people, talked to relatives, many of which were doctors, asked them for data. Sometimes they were happy to give data. Sometimes we paid a bit for the data. Another thing to remember is that back then, people didn't sort of value their data. Nowadays, everybody knows that you have a data set you can monetize it. 12 months later, people started saying, no, you need to pay me for access to my data. But before then, people were just excited about the initiative and happy to sort of support it. In the same time, we started pitching our vision for how stroke care could look like with the product that we want to bring to market. And we were able, to be fair, mostly Chris, he was able to form really, really good relationship with a lot of very prominent figures in the stroke space. People who said, this is exactly what I need, because they were facing the problem. The big problem in stroke is those patients that arrive not to your hospital, not to the big, well-equipped, well-trained hospital, but to the smaller hospital. Those patients sort of diagnosed in the small hospital, but need to be transferred and treated in the big hospital. So you have those doctors, skilled doctors, sitting in the big hospital, and just waiting for those patients to come in. And they're saying, it takes three hours for a patient to be escalated to me. And, you know, those three hours translate to a really, really big change in the patient outcome. They were already sort of facing this problem on a day-to-day basis and trying to address it. And we saw some very creative solutions. Anything from, let's open a WhatsApp group and you guys can sort of text me every time you have a suspected stroke so I can pitch in and help you out to, you know, more elaborate scheme. But we're all having the same pain. So when we came with the idea that says data from the hospitals would stream to the cloud and the stroke cases will pop directly on your mobile device, you would see the eyes light up and they would immediately get it. I used to joke it was the easiest pitch ever to explain to a stroke doctor why a viz is a good idea. And many of them sort of really supported us in getting into research and supporting us with data and with guidance and training. That was the beginning. And startups always have to be scrappy in this context as well. Nowadays, things are very, very different. Now, we have a pretty wide commercial adoption. There are 500 hospitals in the U.S. There's a lot of data streaming to the cloud on a daily basis. We have a lot of clinical partners around the world. So it's less of an issue to collect data. It still is. Data never ceases to be something that requires effort. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the path to getting FDA approval? You were actually the first company ever to get the computer-aided triage FDA approval. So I'd love to hear more about that process and what led into it and realizing that you needed to be the at the forefront of creating a new category and some of the technical challenges of achieving that certification and what that means for you too. I mean, it was definitely an interesting journey. First of all, a bit of advice to anyone in the audience who might be interested in diving into this world. You need to understand regulation. 
It's actually interesting. It's challenging for engineers with analytical minds. There's a set of regulations, a set of restrictions, and trying to navigate and find what can you do that complies with certain regulation, but also delivers the product value. We came with a very, very different approach. And what I mean by that is we're not the first company who was analyzing images to facilitate better healthcare. That has been around for 20 years. But most of the work was aimed at helping humans complete a task that's very, very difficult better. For example, mammography. So mammography is well a large chunk of the investment in AI went into over the last 20, 25 years. Identifying lesions, signs of cancer on a mammography x-ray is remarkably hard. Right? Even the experts, this is their day job, and they do it day in, day out for years, they don't approach 100% accuracy. And a lot of effort went into building software that would help them, that would identify suspected lesions, flag it to them. And the entire regulatory paradigm was around, what do you need to do to show us that a device that helps a reader, a radiologist with a hard task, is actually clinically useful? And we came with a completely different idea. We said, first of all, we're not addressing the radiologist. There's one decision maker, that's the neurosurgeon or the neurointerventionist. The guy is actually going to push a stent up someone's brain and retrieve the clot. They are the decision maker. They are the target audience. And the FDA, you always need to specify who the intended user is. It's actually a big deal to say, I'm an imaging algorithm or an imaging product, but my intended user is not the radiologist, who's the person in the hospital that is in charge of interpreting images. It's actually someone else. So that was the first sort of surprise for the FDA. The other thing was that we were not building an algorithm that does a better job than the human. People ask, is your performance better than human? And the answer is no. If you get a stroke scan in front of the right doctor, they have 100% accuracy. They don't need the AI to support them in identifying the scan. The clinical problem that we were trying to address was it takes a very long time before they see the scan for the first time. What we were saying is that the real power of AI here is not about accuracy. It's not about helping them interpret the scan better. It's really about putting them in front of the scan and letting them exercise their expertise much, 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 much sooner. This was a first. This was an entirely novel approach. It really came from our understanding of the market, of the need, of the business problem, of the pain point. And the FDA said, once they sort of realized it, there was some sort of an aha moment there where they realized we're not trying to make people read strokes with better accuracy, but rather read the strokes faster. They said, okay, this is awesome. They were quite excited. They said, okay, this can actually really help patients, but we don't have a regulation for it. We need to sort of create something new. And that's typically done in collaboration with the company through a process that's called the Nova process. And together with the FDA, we created this category called computer-aided triage. Computer-aided triage is really about connecting a doctor and a patient faster than otherwise available. We got the clearance in February of 2018. It was a pretty big deal. Actually, the FDA themselves put out a press release on that. And this has been groundbreaking. Last week, I actually spent some time counting. Today, 26 AI products that have been cleared by the FDA under this regulation. The FDA model 
you do what's called a 510k clearance. So you're saying, there's another product that you guys cleared and I'm very similar to that product, so can you please clear me as well? If you sort of build a tree on who was cleared based on whom, the subtree that is rooted at our devices has 26 devices in almost any pathology imagined from cancer lesions in breast to free gas in the bowel to fractures to a lot of things. So we're very proud of that and a lot of companies are involved. That's really cool to hear about. One thing that has become obvious is that if you go to the right regulatory consultants, they're typically able to explain to you pretty much what you need to do, what you need to prove, what you need to build so you can get this kind of clearance. So definitely the barrier to entry there is slowly going down. Very cool. Can we dive a little bit deeper into internally how this works and how your engineering team operates and some of the things you're working on there? We'd love to hear either a little bit about the company and how the engineering teams and the product teams operating. And I know your team's based in Tel Aviv. We'd love to hear about what it's been like to work across borders. Yeah, sure. So let me sort of give you a few highlights of the product. So from a technical perspective, what happens? The things start at the CT scanner. Patient arrives to the hospital with a suspected stroke. They're being scanned pretty rapidly. The scan goes up to the cloud. Scan goes from the scanner to an on-prem node that we have. These two pieces communicate with a protocol called DICOM. So all medical imaging has a file structure and a communication protocol. So at least you have something that's pre-specified. From there, we send it to the cloud. So it goes to a bucket. And then the processing begins. I like to sort of conceptually divide our system into three parts. There's the, what we call the backend, or the infrastructure would be a better word, that handles the data coming in. It's a remarkably messy data. There's a lot of problems with it. The patient is scanned. The scan produces hundreds of images, but they come in separate files, and you sort of have to patch them together, sometimes heuristically. So figure that out. Figure that the scan was completed. Start processing. Then there's the algorithm. So the algorithm takes the 3D array as an input. And again, there's a hybrid of heuristic or classical image processing techniques combined with deep learning techniques that eventually tries to figure out if there's a stroke or not. And the third component is the mobile app. This is something that I think is really unique for Viz in this AI for a healthcare space, that we also have a mobile app we send the alerts to the mobile app, so you get a push notification saying a suspected stroke was detected. You click on that, and then you can see the scan, and you can communicate with the team. And behind those two sentences, there's an insane amount of engineering because the scan is huge. The scan is like 512 by 512 by, say, 400. So 500 megabytes of data. You need to get them to the phone. You need a really, really slick user experience. You need sort of 3D rotation in real time to enable like really complex things on the phone so the physicians can use that. And then there's another part, which is like, so I got the alert, I viewed the scans, now I need to communicate with my team. So we built what we call HIPAA compliant WhatsApp. So you have an entire messaging functionality within the app. And it has to be within the app because first of all, security and HIPAA compliance, but also then it's in the context of the imaging talking about a patient, then they have the context of the image. And then the physicians would start to chat and say, well, what do you think? Maybe we do this, maybe we do that. I'll be in the hospital in 20 minutes. Can you prep the patient for operation? These are sort of the building blocks of the technology. And there's a lot of engineering that goes behind the scenes there. For example, we early on recognized that typically that you had mobile applications to view medical imaging. But the typical user experience was 
you click on the scan, and then you wait for several minutes as it downloads the scan. When you're dealing with stroke and every minute matters, we can't have that. That's a remarkably frustrating and annoying experience. You can, you can imagine there's a lot of engineering that goes into making the scan available really, really fast. There's proprietary compression algorithms and leveraging CDNs to distribute the data faster to the phone and a chunking algorithm and a whole bunch of stuff designed to provide a really fast user experience. There's a lot of effort and ingenuity and the team has done a really, really great job at building that. You also asked about the relationship between engineering and products and so on, and at least in the early days, we didn't really have a distinction. Everybody, it was a small team, and everybody was sort of <laughs> you know, te telepathically communicating with each other, and everybody knew what was going on. But this was the sort of discussions we would have. Someone would be at the hospital and say, they're frustrated by the time it takes the scan to load. What can we do about it? And you start sort of brainstorming ideas, come up with a few engineering solutions, implement them, deliver them, and see that the user is, is happy all of a sudden. So, yeah, so that's great. That's great. Yeah, and I was curious about the size of the team now, and I think you're going to talk about maybe a little bit of your where your team's based and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I moved to Israel. So we started a company at Stanford, and we raised our fund, sit around there, and did a lot of the initial exploration and built sort of the core team, sort of assembled there for I guess five people. And I think this is a Stanford approach, so I give credit to Stanford. GSB because we really wanted to nail down the business case before we start building a huge engineering team. So we had a small engineering team. We had, you know, we're working on data collection, building infrastructure for deep learning, infrastructure for data annotation, sort of doing the prep work for playing with ideas to see what we're doing, building sort of Lego bricks that we could assemble once we sort of nailed what we really want to build and talking to physicians and so on. When we sort of had a pretty clear idea of what we wanted to build, I moved back to Israel. First of all, there was like personal reasons. The kids were sort of missing their grandparents and their cousins and other very good reasons, but also for, you know, for the talent. And it's not that there's lack of talent in Silicon Valley, but first of all, there's very fierce competition. Second, my own personal network is here in Israel. It's sort of a well-known thing. You know, very, very connected. Everybody comes from the same, you know, units in the army. The first few employees were people who, some were literally my bunkmates awesome. uh, at, at one point in the past. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's a different thing altogether when someone gives you initially, it was a, yeah, you know, just like, it would be nice to work together again. So I'll, I'll put some effort and if this picks up, we'll, you know, we'll see. And nowadays, the global team is about 120 people split roughly equally between the U.S. side and the Tel Aviv office, which holds the entire engineering team. And we're hiring like crazy now. We had an all-hands day, five new people were introduced. So we're really trying to ramp up in terms of headcounts. Yeah, and, and there's definitely a challenge. It's tough to be far from the customer. It's tough to be far from your colleagues. It's really, really tough to have a 10-hour difference. It's hard to find time to chat. It always ends up being in the evening. It's stressful for people. It puts a strain on, on your family life and so on. If you want to spend an afternoon with the kids, <laughs> you know, 6 p.m., the San Francisco office wakes up and they all start, you know, slacking because they just got to the office and they have questions, they have answers, stuff goes on. So personally, it's challenging. If I'm brutally honest, it's all challenging to manage that. But, you know, we're not the first company who does that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
you have, you know, the upside, I think, is the amount and level of talent that we're able to sort of source here and the level of connection you get with people. You know, someone brings their friend from high school or the army or university. It's very, very tightly knit. So you get really great people. You get really good connections with people. And you get also very, very loyal to the cause. Yeah. So people know what they're getting into and they want to join Viz because of the mission. And what if, if we would have set up the office in SF. I don't know uh, how that would have turned out. Maybe better, maybe worse. But right now, I'm very happy. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you described everything about how the product works and those three layers. What are some of the current challenges or initiatives you're, you and the team are working on? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. There are, there are many, <laughs> many, many kinds. So maybe I'll sample a few. And if there's anything you think is particularly interesting, we can sort of dive into that. So examples. Company is growing. 500 hospitals. We just entered the market in February 2018, so less than three years ago. Very, very fast ramp up. There's growing pains every company that scales dramatically experiences around stability of the product. All of a sudden, what you were able to do manually, you need to sort of automate. What you were able to do yourself, you need to hand over to the customer a lot of depth. There's a lot of sort of maturity of the product. That's one class of things. The other is always continue to innovate. There's new algorithms that we're developing, new pathologies we're diving into. But also one thing that sort of, I think, makes us stand out, we have AI in our name, but definitely AI is not our main offering. We see ourselves not as an AI company, but sort of as as a workflow company that Incidentally, sometimes uses AI to sort of enhance the workflow, but the workflow in healthcare, and anyone who's been in a hospital even once knows this, workflow in healthcare is broken. And it's not because people are evil, and it's not because people are stupid. It's because physicians are overworked and underfunded and people get sicker. There are so many ways you can use technology to improve things. And I'll just give two examples. So one example is, and to give context, we like to talk about the continuum of care. That's the sequence of things that happen from when the stroke starts to long after the patient is discharged from the hospital. You know, so the sum of the interaction of the patient with the healthcare system. And you can sort of chop that into blocks and think, what can I do to accelerate this, to improve that, to facilitate better care here? And we started obviously with when the patient is scanned. That was the first time this springs into action when there's an image available. Nowadays, we just recently launched a feature that integrates with the EMS pager system. So no AI there, right? It's, it's just, you know, roll up your sleeves, dip your hands in oil and get things connected. But it delivers incredible value because now when the EMS picks up a stroke, a suspected stroke patient from home, the entire stroke team knows about that immediately. So they're all synchronized. And they can start discussing who's, who's available. And let's wait for the patient in the bay. And let's make sure the scanner is free. And all of a sudden, the care of the patient is accelerated. On the totally different end of the spectrum, after a patient had a stroke, you typically want to try and figure out why they had a stroke. So you can treat the root cause and make sure they don't stroke out again. In many cases, the patient needs to have sort of a cardiology follow-up. And a remarkable, but maybe not a sort of surprising fact is that Most patients who need a cardiology follow-up don't get it. Just because someone didn't connect the dots, didn't refer them, they left the hospital, so the cardiologist didn't get an opportunity to chat with them, 
So again, a, a relatively small feature that handles the references from neurology to cardiology. And so it closes the loop and makes sure the cardiologist sees the patient before they leave the hospital. We recently launched that. And we're sort of trying to help with a completely different part of the care continuum of the patient. And again, you know, interesting integration, interesting product work. We get to know an entirely new persona in the system, which is a cardiologist who has a different routine, a different mentality, a different preferences. The third class, this may sound familiar <laughs> to you specifically. <laughs> so, you know, when the physicians get the alert, the first thing they ask is, what is the story? And what they want to know is, give me the details. Who is this patient? Do they have any background illnesses? What is their medication? What's going on? Because they need that to make a decision. One thing we really want to do is to make that available to them. To do that, you need to integrate with the EMR, the Electronic Medical Record, which is another sort of gargantuan system in the hospital. And I know, you, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. This is why we you know, started talking with, with Redux to sort of see how we can integrate with EMR. So maybe you can take the follow-up and explain why this is a remarkably challenging engineering task to integrate with, with EMRs across hundreds or thousands of hospitals. But there's so many challenges of different kinds. You can talk about internationalization. So you move to new markets. In the new market in Europe, maybe the regulator requires that your app is available in a different language. So redoing your app to support multiple languages, internationalization and localization is an interesting product challenge, interesting engineering challenge. Satisfying new security and privacy requirements. There's HIPAA in the US, there's GDPR in Europe. All of a sudden, there's, uh, you need to do things maybe differently. You need to provide different abilities. You have sort of the right to be forgotten. Did you design your data, uh, your database so you would be able to delete a specific user, a specific patient upon request? Maybe yes, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but you know, there's interesting challenges around that. So, I mean, the challenges are endless and ranging from really front-end user-facing stuff to really deep, deep infrastructure. Regulation requires the data governance issue. So Canadian data cannot leave Canada. U.S. data cannot leave the U.S. German data cannot leave Germany. So you need three production environments in three different data centers all of a sudden. That requires a lot of automation and infrastructure and monitoring. And how do you do deployments when you have three? Really, growing is a challenge. It's a very exciting challenge. And this is part of the reason that the team is growing. But there's literally every flavor of engineering challenges is in the back of it. Yeah, that sounds exciting. A lot of really fun problems to tackle there. To close this out here, David, would you mind giving us any resources, maybe books or blogs or other podcasts that you'd recommend for someone just now getting into healthcare technology? Yeah, definitely. So a few things, a couple of blogs that I follow, one of them by a guy called, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, Luke uh, Ogden-Reiner. He's pretty famous. So he's both a trained radiologist and sort of an AI person and has been sort of interpreting and commenting on the AI scene in healthcare for the last several years and typically has very, you know, very realistic point of view that understands the clinical side, understands the technical side, but also brings in the, the business perspective. There's another really nice blog called uh, Out of Pocket that focuses more on the financial side of healthcare which I think is one of the biggest challenges when you want to make your first steps in sort of this technology healthcare intersection is really understanding the business side, understanding 
where the money flows, because you want to build a product that saves lives. That's why you're here. You want to build a product that delights your users, of course, but you also need the system to be okay with spending money. You cannot just be, yeah, I'll save more patients, pay me, and you'll save more patients. They're like, what's in for me? How do I justify? What's the ROI? So you really, you really need to understand the finances. And the healthcare system is complex. And this, this disconnect between providers like hospitals and the payers like the insurers, that's a really good place for that. Two additional resources. One of them is very recent. So MIT just released AI in healthcare free class that's available online. I have to admit, I only skimmed through and watched like a couple of the talks, but what I liked about it is that it wasn't only about AI. It was about what makes healthcare different, a bit about the regulations, a bit about what's a clinical need, and also understanding the clinical setup. So that's a good resource. And the first resource, which I would recommend, and, and that may be a bit of a surprising one, is the FDA database for clearances. You can go there, you can search for a company, you can search for a product name. The clearance letter is typically a few pages long, describes the technology, describes the testing that was done, and sort of getting a feeling of what is being done in this space, what can be done, is just interesting. I wouldn't say that I don't like, you know, read it for fun, but definitely thinking about a new thing, I would just go and read like 20 clearance letters to sort of build a mental picture of what's going on in the space and what is the regulator thing about it and all that. So, so I guess these are the four issues. That's great. Thank you for all those, David. And it's cool that you mentioned Out of Pocket as well. The other Redox podcast that's not necessarily developer focused, but just more healthcare focused in general has had Nikhil, who's the author of Out of Pocket and a recent episode. So if anybody's listening to that and hasn't checked that out, it'd be good to pop over there and get a take of that as well. And we'll include links to all these in the show notes as well. So people can go in and find them easily. And then David, one last question. If anybody wanted to reach out and get in touch, is there a preferred way that they could contact you? Yeah, sure. So first of all, there's my email address is david at viz.ai. If someone's interested, they can just shoot me an email. I mean, I guess that's the best way. If you're in a hospital that uses Viz AI software, you can open a support <laughs> place, support ticket and say, I, I want to talk to David and, you know, they will escalate it to me. But I guess that Tony address is a very small fraction of your very cool. Well, David, thank you so much for joining. This has been a, a great conversation and I look forward to staying in touch and thanks again for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Maddie again. Just wanted to thank David for being on the show and to thank all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback, send us an email at podcasts at redoxengine.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to look out for future episodes, and until next time, thank you for listening to Shift 6, a podcast for healthcare developers.